it was hardly possible in the times that we are in to, to have a sermon that's not in some way connected to the coronavirus, which is uh, pretty fascinating. You know, sometimes we, we talk as elders, well, oh, this week, do we get back to normal? Does Pastor Scott get back to the Gospel of Mark? And, uh, and there's going to be a time for that for sure, but it seems like every week there's also a, a very appropriate time to preach something that has to do with uh, trials or sufferings or uh, something that we're going through. But it's good. It's good because rarely do we share a common experience that touches every one of our lives and brings us together seeking the Lord's wisdom and his sustaining grace throughout whatever our circumstance is. At this time, we have uh, many examples of neediness. We see our frailty and the frailty of those who are sick. We, we see the fall of this world and the curse upon it. One of the examples that I came across this week of uh, particular neediness is Pastor Nilo Sanchez's wife, Feely. Some of you know them. We've had him speak here before. And he is in the Philippines. And there they have a, a very special circumstance where uh, they pretty much are restricted from almost any travel. And he's been training pastors through a mobile school that goes to different villages, and he can't do that anymore right now. Plus, his wife, Feely, is, she has discovered that she has an enlarged heart, and she's not able to uh, do very much. She gets out of breath and uh, very weak, is easy, easily exhausted. And Pastor Nilo uh, has to stay with her and, uh, and care for her. The government has restricted the uh, travel so much that they don't have any church gatherings at all. And then they have little access and availability to medicine. It's very hard to uh, disperse it and to get it into their villages, especially. And Pastor Nilo is uh, a diabetic, and he's usually on insulin two times a day, and he's run out. Uh, he's, he's found himself uh, trying to ingest certain plants that would give a natural insulin. Uh, he takes other medicines as well for what he uh, humorously calls his uh, wasting away body. He talks about the scarcity of food as well and many other effects of the restrictions and the sufferings that people are going through. And You might think these circumstances would really bring Pastor Nilo down. But when you read his letter, it teems with joy. He has uh, statements of his perseverance and his confidence in the face of the trials he's going through a couple of times, Nanilo makes jokes about his sickness and about his diet. And, and even though the, the internet is very slow, we see him persevering as he, he still records these 45-minute teaching sessions to send out to people on the internet. But it takes 12 hours to upload one. He ends this letter this way. He says, can this pandemic hold us hostage and immobilize our serving with God? No. In fact, what an opportune time for us all to proclaim the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who alone is the hope of our nations. For not even death can separate his people from his love. 
He loves us to the end. There is somebody who feels and understands and enjoys the love of the sovereign God no matter what his circumstances might be. That is a man who believes in the sovereignty of God over everything and the love of God in everything. I believe these perspectives are crucial for you and for me as we live our lives during this pandemic, but in all of the circumstances of our lives. Let me define the sovereignty of God for just a moment. Say a few things about it, a few facets. Uh, What we mean by the sovereignty of God is that God is the supreme, all-powerful authority over everything, including time, beginning to end, and space. And we see that in his sovereignty, he wisely controls everything in such a way to accomplish his will and his plan. He has a purpose for it all. And everything that he does is governed by his righteousness and his justice, his mercy, and his love. The problem we have when we look at our circumstances a lot of times is that we we fail to be able to see the purpose and the wisdom behind it, the love in it and the justice and the control or the power over it. It's unseen. We need the eyes of faith, don't we? And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in order to help us today to grab those eyes or those glasses of faith and put them on, we're going to visit a person who faced some of the most austere experiences and circumstances, most difficult times that are ever recorded. I believe that we can learn of God's sovereignty and his mercy here. And then we'll be able to see them anywhere. We're going to look at four passages in the book of Job. We want to be able to see four perspectives of the eyes of faith so that we can walk clearly and in the light during dark times. So who is Job and how can we learn from him? Well, I'll give you a little context. Chapter 1 book of Job, it tells us that Job was a man who lived in the land of Uz, not Oz, but Uz. Up front, we see that God has blessed Job very graciously. There's so many things he's blessed Job with. First, we see that he's given him a genuine faith that has produced character. That's very important to understand that he has a genuine faith. It describes him as blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He's seen rising early in verse 5, making sacrifices on behalf of his children. And God has blessed him so much with a large family. I can identify, I have eight children. Job had ten, he had me beat. He has a wife and seven sons and three daughters. He also has a lot of other people in his life. There are workers galore. Verse 3 says he has very many servants. He is also blessed with great wealth. Verse 3 says that his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And of course he would have owned all the land and all of the food and all of the facilities needed to take care of such vast wealth. So we're told that 
Job was the greatest of all the men in the east. But there's also an unseen realm that we are let in on. Verses 6 through 12. Job, by the way, did not have the benefit of this. Suddenly the narrative breaks into this rare look into this hidden realm. Angelic beings called the sons of God are are in an audience before the Lord and Satan enters in. And he's been about roaming the earth. We see from the New Testament uh, that he's characterized as as the one who seeks those whom he may devour. He wants to totally undo someone, especially someone who claims to worship the Almighty. And God asks him if he has considered trying to get Job, his righteous and upright and blameless servant, to deny him. And Satan says, well, he only serves you because you bless him and you protect him. If you just take your hand away and you take all of that away, Job will curse you to your face. And God says, go for it. He allows Satan to take everything, all of his possessions, all of his people, mostly anyway, except for a few small exceptions. And boy, Satan does his worst. Who is Satan? And what does he have to do with the sovereignty of God? Well, Satan is a fallen, rebellious, evil spiritual being who opposes God and wants to destroy his people. That means you. And the Bible calls him many different names. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's the God of this world. He's the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. He's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. He's been a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. And he wants to deceive, devour, tempt, and destroy you. Satan has his hand in inflicting great misery in this life. In Luke chapter 13, verse 16, in Acts 21, we see that Satan can inflict people with many diseases. But thankfully, as we see in this book of Job, God has him on a leash. He has limitations over what he can do. He has to have God's permission, and he's limited in what he can accomplish. And unwittingly, Satan would never want to do this, but his plans, his desires, his intentions, and his activities are worked by God together for the accomplishment of his plan. God often uses means through which he accomplishes his purposes. And Satan is one of those means. And Satan intends it for evil, but just like Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50-20 intended their actions against Joseph for evil, God intended the very same acts for good. God uses means. Even the evil actions of sinful spiritual beings are physical beings. But Satan even often uses means to accomplish his intentions. He uses these means this time to take the people and possessions that he takes 
from Job's life. First of all, Satan uses people. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, it says that he has captivated people to do his will. And that's what we see in this passage. We see the first group is in chapter 1 of Job, verses 14 and 15. The first group are called the Sabaeans. They attack and kill his servants uh, while they're plowing the crops, and they, they steal all of the oxen and the donkeys. The second group are called the Chaldeans. In verse 17, they send three raiding parties to steal all the camels and to kill those who kept them. Next, we see that Satan uses what we would generally think of as perhaps natural disasters. He uses something similar to a, to a fierce lightning storm. We have these great lightning storms sometimes in Florida, but this was a, a monster of a storm. The lightning comes from the heavens, and it causes apparently a fire big enough to, uh, to consume all the sheep and the servants that took care of them. From the servant that runs to Job, and there's one servant from each one of these catastrophes that comes to Job and tells him what happened. He says, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And finally, Satan is able to bring a strong wind that knocks down the house where the children were celebrating and they were all killed. All of them. Each time, only one servant survives and returns to give Job the horrible news. Thousands of possessions stolen or destroyed. Hundreds of workers, many of whom I'm sure he knew and was close to, are dead. And then ten precious children are dead. Imagine that. Hard to imagine losing one child, let alone ten. Just one of these tragedies would have been emotionally debilitating. Just one would have been crippling. It would be very easy to respond in anger to God, wouldn't it? But listen to Job's response in Job chapter 1 verse 20. It says, Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. In verse 21, it says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. These are absolutely amazing words if you think about what just happened to Job in his life. But it's from these words that I want you to learn our first perspective that God wants us to have as we face trials. And that is, God is sovereign over the people and the possessions of your life. Now before we go to principalizing this text, let's take a moment to just feel the terror of loss, the, the reality of the pain that Job is feeling. 
We don't want to be glib or sterile in approach to such a, a masterful story that we are uh, reading here. There's, there's real valuable material loss in the death of loved ones. The pain of grief that many of you have felt is very real. And you need time to mourn sometimes, don't you? When my father died, a, a good friend at some point put his hand on me and said, have you mourned? And I broke into tears. The Bible is full of people mourning over death. Death is the result of sin and the fall. And this, the first thing we see Job do is to mourn. It says he arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head. These are, these are cultural expressions of mourning, the, the rending of this garment that he had upon. It's like he, he's, he's had a ripped heart. We might express our mourning sometimes by wearing black clothing. There are 126 specific cases in the Bible where somebody mourns over the death of a loved one. And we are exhorted in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, to, to weep with those who weep. I hope that's a part of your life, seeing people's grief and feeling compassion with them. Many of you have already suffered the loss of a, a loved one. And if you live long enough, you will lose people in your life. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We, we will all experience it. Sometimes we lose people to death, but sometimes we also lose people because of the break in a relationship. Children go astray and disown us. Parents leave us and forsake us. Friends have the fractures. There, there's a mourning in these as well. Sadly, due to sin, there's divorce. And while it's not as bad as losing a loved one, losing possessions can also be very painful. Anybody feel that as well? I've heard of some of you that you've lost jobs or businesses or houses and land or, or money or animals or, or you've lost a car in an accident. Or maybe you've lost your freedom. I'm really sorry about that. I know you suffer greatly. Now what's striking in this passage though is what accompanies Job's mourning. His mourning is joined by worship. See, he values the Lord more than he valued possessions or people in his life. It says he fell to the ground and worshiped. Now, I understand the falling to the ground part. <laughs> Sometimes you can't even hold up. But we see here that he worships. How is it that he worships? Well, first of all, it's because of one, God, one of God's gifts. God gave him a genuine faith, and that's what faith does. Have you experienced that? It's counterintuitive from a human perspective, but all of a sudden, you can go nowhere else but to him. It recognizes that God is the only place to go and seek comfort and refuge. True faith sees God as more valuable than anything you've lost. 
But what knowledge would enable someone to worship in such difficult circumstances? Well, Job tells us. He continues in this passage. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb. You cannot come into this life without instantly having a mother, of course. I mean, she's right there, but you literally have nothing else. You're naked. Uh, the Gettys and the Ungers just recently had babies. They're part of our church. and I mean, I was down at the beach the other day, and uh, the Ungers' baby, he's already there hanging tin and wearing his sunglasses. Not quite, but, uh, but he was there. Uh, Pastor Scott, he's a grandpa now. Wednesday, uh, his uh, daughter and his son and daughter-in-law had a baby, and he's out there in California, enjoying being a grandpa for the first time. But babies are helpless. They they don't have anything, and their mothers care for them in everything. What Job realizes is that when he was born. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have children. He didn't have any possessions. He didn't have houses or lands or servants. And he knows that everything that he did have was a gift from God. The Lord gives. The Lord gave him these things. This is so important for us to have this mindset, this perspective. We can lose that perspective because we think that we have uh, as a husbands and wives this procreative power that we have brought these children into life as if we weren't dependent upon God to give these children we can try to take credit for this but the Lord says in Psalm 127 that children are the gift of the Lord aren't they and we see throughout with, uh, with Hannah and Elizabeth and Rachel and, and Sarah that the Lord is the one who opens the womb and closes the womb. We might also try to take credit for our possessions and our wealth. You know, through my great ingenuity and intelligence, I have built this business. I have been able to become wealthy and I bought cars and houses and land. I have lots of money in the bank. But God makes it clear to Job that he had given everything. David worshiped God for his sovereignty over his possessions. David was a king and he had lots of stuff, lots of people under his rule and even a large family, although he shouldn't have had as large of a family as he did. One wife is enough. And she is a blessing. Second Chronicles 29, 11, he says this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all things. Listen to this. Both riches and honor come from you. Everything. Everything is a gift. We have to see life that way. David ends that section with, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. Job also has the conviction that the Lord is the one who takes away. So the Lord gives people, he gives possessions into your life, but he's the one that takes them away as well. 
If you lose a person in this life, you can know that God in his wisdom decided that it was time for that person to die. He set the limits. The Lord in his infinite wisdom has a day that your life will end. In his determination. What's difficult, what's even harder, is when somebody dies where we would think of as prematurely. They die in childbirth or they die young. If you lose possessions in this life, then the Lord determined that it was best for you to lose them. If you lose a business, the Lord determined it was best for you to lose that business. At one time, you were wealthy. You were, uh, business was booming. You felt invincible and successful, but the Great Depression happened. Or the Great Recession happened. Or 9-11 happened. Or the global pandemic happened, and you lost everything. What Job also realized is that ultimately, God will take away every person and every possession that you have in your life. You see, you can't take it with you, can you? Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. That's a poetic way of referring to when he dies. You're going to be naked. You're not going to have anything. Except for what's in eternity. Whether it's heaven and Christ and everything he has for you, which is glorious. Amen? Or... Hell is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. So as you go along in life, God's going to give people, he's going to give possession, he's going to take people sometimes, he's going to take possessions and what we are called to do is to worship and say blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job does in Job 120. He fell to the ground and worship. Now the key to that, the ability for you to worship in your terrible circumstances is going to be directly proportional to the degree you value God over people in your life and possessions. This is the perspective we see in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. The psalmist there is looking at the riches of the other people the wicked and he sees what he doesn't have and he he wants it and he wonders what's the value of living life this way but he finally comes to his senses and he sees their end that God's going to take away all the possessions and people in their lives and they're going to go basically down to the grave and these people he's talking about would go to hell and so he says in Psalm 73 25 and 26 whom have I in heaven but you and upon the earth I desire nothing My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I like that word portion. He's saying, if you divide everything up, all the people, all the possessions, and all the universe, and you're going to give me something out of it, I want God. You are my portion. Can you say that? God, I just want you. 
If you take everything else away, everybody else away, I'm content with you. In the New Testament, we see this perspective in Philippians 3.8. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul pretty much lost everything. He, he, God put things and people in his life and he took things and people from his life and he suffered and he was sick. He was in prison and he said, I count them all as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's what we need to aim at, people. Is we're, none of us are perfect. None of us are going to just instantly have that as our go-to because we're sinners. But that's, that's where growth needs to happen is, is that you have the upward call in Jesus Christ and you're just aiming towards that relationship and valuing him, desiring him, praying to him, uh, enjoying that intimacy, growing. And the more you value Christ, the more the things of this world would become strangely dim, as the song says. Job did not even allow this horrendous grief to make him sin against God. Verse 22 says, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So the blessed, wealthiest man in the East has become poor. What else can happen to Job? Well, chapter 2. <laughs> Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 is what we'll look at, but we see that God is sovereign over every circumstance of your life. Satan is unsuccessful at the first attempt. He comes before God. He claims that taking people and possessions away from Job wasn't enough. Now he believes that something that will be worse than the inner turmoil and pain of emotion will be physical pain. Physical pain will get him. So the Lord is convinced again of the saving faith that he has given Job, that it will be a persevering, enduring faith, and that even physical pain will not cause him to reject God and curse him. And so we see that uh, Satan's allowed, he's, he's given permission, but with limitations again. He's given permission to afflict him with some kind of sickness, but he is limited in that he cannot take his life. So Satan strikes Job with painful oozing boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Let's see what Job's reaction is. His reaction comes first after his wife's reaction. First of all, in verse 9, he says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's like that's what Satan's trying to get him to do is curse God and die. Now, there have been a lot of jokes made about Job's wife. And there's been men who will claim that they have Job's wife. Shame on you. Actually, uh, we should have a great sympathy for Job's wife, shouldn't we? I mean, she just lost everything that Job lost. And that includes the 10 children that she brought into this world. 
through her womb. She nursed them. She clothed them. She rocked them. She held them. She raised them. She read to them. She took care of them all these years. And then she's bereft of all of them in a moment. Her response was wrong, but humanly speaking, it's understandable. But it's Job's response that we want to learn from. In verse 10, he says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Before, Job spoke of the loss of people and possessions. Here he speaks of a wider category that includes all uh, circumstances of good and adversity. It's easy to accept good circumstances, isn't it? Hey, we're going to get ice cream. You know. I'm healthy. Don't have to go see the doctor. We have a great family and things are going well. I love my job. Lord's providing for all of our needs. We have a good church. We have good friends. So much to be thankful for. You're just enjoying life. And, and let me just say at that point, it's so important to regularly be thankful. It's easy to just kind of take ease and goodness for granted. But the scriptures tell us that we should rejoice always in First. Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. All these circumstances that are such blessings, all the things that Job had before he was, these things were taken away, uh, were just gifts, a blessing that we should be thankful for, thankful for, thankful for. Just, we ought to be just saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But there's also going to come adversity, bad things, evil things. They remind us that Satan, his name means adversary. And the world hates us. The earth is cursed. And our flesh attacks us from within. Natural disasters happen. A hurricane destroys your house. A partner that you trusted steals your business and your clients. A cancer attacks your body. You lose your job. Your spouse commits adultery. You can't get your medicine. Job's adversity is a painful disease. Listen to some of the descriptions of his suffering. We said that it was boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. But in other places, he describes this as well. In chapter 3, verse 24, he says, For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Chapter 7, verse 5, we see that his skin hardens. 21, 6, he's shivering. He has trouble sleeping. And when he does sleep, he has terrifying dreams. 
that's in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There, there are many references throughout the book of Job that, that say things like that he has trouble seeing, that he, he gets so skinny that his bones stick out, his, his skin turns black and falls off, he feels internal burning, he even vomits and has terrible bad breath. But Job gives us the perspective that we should have back in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, not to just accept good, but accept adversity do you accept it or fight against it do you accept that God has given this to you worshiping God causes us to accept our circumstances Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7:14, one of the wisest men he says in the day of prosperity be happy but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other the adversity, and the good. Once you accept your adversity as ultimately from the Lord, now you're ready to see that you can trust him through it. This, we train pastors in seminary, and one of the quotes that I really like is from C.H. Spurgeon, who went through quite a bit of uh, difficulty and plagues and things like this as well. And he said to preachers, he said, if we are going to preach through adversity, we will have to live in communion with God on such intimate terms, speaking to him our needs and our pain and feeding on the grace of his promises and the revelations of his glory. I think that's true for everybody. We have to go further into the book to find our third perspective that we need, though. After Job's conversation with his wife, three friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and if, you, uh, if you've read the book of Job, you know that they're not the best of friends. First, the best thing they do is uh, sit quietly with him for the first several days. Eventually, they begin to talk, and most of their conversation and all of these uh, cycles of speeches that they give Job have to do with blaming Job somehow for what his circumstances are. And then Job responds to them, and and Job spends most of his time trying to defend himself. But in the midst of this, we discover Job's belief, our third point, that God is sovereign over your life itself. We see this in Job 14.5 and 13.15. He's sovereign not just over the people and the possessions and all of the circumstances, both good and adversity of your life, but he's sovereign over your life itself. Job says in chapter 14, verse 5, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Job tells us that the very number of our days and our months are determined. They're declared and decreed by God. We have limits over which we cannot pass. You cannot live any longer than God has determined that you will live. You also cannot die any moment before he has determined that you will die. That gives quite a bit of bravery, doesn't it? Quite a bit of comfort, if we can really grasp that. This is reinforced by other passages. Uh, Acts 17, he says, uh, from one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live verses 25 26 
David wrote this in Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to pass. He's known, and, and there's an intimacy in Psalm 139 where he not only knows how long you're going to live and has declared it and determined it, but he knows you as you're going through it. He's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. You're, you're sitting down, you're rising up, you're going to sleep, you're going out, you're coming in. You know, he just describes all of that. He knows our hearts, he knows our thoughts, he knows a word before it's on our tongue. And he cares for us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made by the hands of God. These verses teach us that God's sovereignty controls human lifespans. And this should not cause us to despair, but to be assured and have hope. Ecclesiastes 3 says that our times are in his hands. All day long, all life long, your life is in his hands. And if you know him, that is a, a loving father who carries you in his hands who will never leave you or forsake you he will build your help he, he hems you in before and behind and he, he walks with you the encouraging thing is that we can know that life and death are in God's hands and, and Job even says this in chapter 13 verse 15 he says though he slay me I will hope in him now, the first part of that's somewhat striking. You know, though he slay me. We saw in uh, chapter 1 that God may determine that Satan would cause your death. He might be the means of it. Evil people might be the cause of your death. Natural disasters might be it. It may be through sickness as Satan has been allowed to inflict these things upon Job. But, but there have also been occasions in history where God has directly ended somebody's life. If you think about uh, 1 Samuel 2, 6, he says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and rise, raises up. Then we have Uzzah who tried to steady the ark, not supposed to touch it, thinks he's doing a good thing. He does and he's struck dead. You have Nadab and Abihu burning strange fire before the Lord, struck dead. You have... Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Lord, struck dead. Now these seem dramatic and they get people's attention, but the sober reality is that we all deserve to be struck dead. That's a good thing to grasp. How sinful are you? Just sharing with somebody this past week that, you know, it may be good for you to know that Maybe, I don't know, may scare you, but I, as one of your elders, have the capacity for every kind of evil that is possible in my heart. Oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. But He's put His Spirit within me to wage war against the flesh. But we deserve to be stricken. But the second part of the verse gives us a little hope. You know, I mean, Job, he, he wanted God to strike him dead. He probably would have liked that because he's 
chapter 3, he spends the whole time saying, I wish I'd never been born or that I'd died right after birth. I wouldn't face all these things. But he does give us some hope in the second half. In verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. No matter what happens, there's hope in God. You see, the believer's okay even if the Lord slays us because there has been one who has been slain for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is he we should worship. In Revelation 5, we have this beautiful place where God gives us a worship hymn. If you want to turn there for a moment, I want to read this. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Who is it that we hope in? It's the one who was slain in our place. Revelation 5, 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures, we see a scene in heaven, just like we saw the satanic scene back in Job. And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, that's Jesus, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from tri- every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 14 says, the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's what we do when we worship in the midst of our trials. We're joining in with those who see the beauty and the glory of the Lamb who was slain for our sins. And we value Him. We worship Him. Job later expresses this future reign of Christ and his hope in him when he says in Job 19, verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Even if the coronavirus or brain cancer or whatever brings about our death, our hope is that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. First Thess 5, 9 and 10. So we have three perspectives. We should see that the Lord is sovereign over the people and possessions in our life. He's sovereign over all of the circumstances in our life, good and adversity. He's sovereign over our death itself and our life as well. But we also see this last perspective. God's sovereignty should bring submission. And by that I mean submission to his purposes. We see this in Job 42. The rest of the book has this cycle of speeches from Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and then all of a sudden Elihu is a young man who who steps up and 
rises to talk, but, but the book is capped off when God speaks. He tells us that he, he starts to instruct Job. He tells him that he created everything, the earth and the sea. He stops the mighty waves in their tracks. They can go no farther. He commands it to be morning. He makes light. He makes darkness. He's sovereign over the snow, the rain, the sleet, the hail, the, the ice, the frost. And then he causes the ground to sprout. He commands the clouds to rain. He made all the stars and he arranged them in their constellations. He created all the animals and he feeds them. And he describes his intimate knowledge uh, in his involvement in the lives of lions and ravens and deer and donkeys and ostriches and oxen and horses and locusts and hawks and eagles and powerful monsters and creatures like behemoth and leviathan. Beautiful to read all those chapters. Well, here's Job's response when he gets all of this instruction. In, in verse 2 of Job 42, well, it says, Then Job answered and said to the Lord, and the, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he quotes God. He says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, he, said, he speaks to God, he says, Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. And he quotes God again. He says, I will ask of you, and you instruct me. And he says, Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. We see, th- we see five ways we should submit to God here. First of all, we should submit to the idea that God can do all things. God can do everything. Verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things. Jesus told his, the people he was talking to in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, says, looking to them, he said, with people this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Believe that God is going to accomplish his purpose. And he is a good and loving God. And if you're one of his people, he has a beautiful purpose for you. And believe that God can accomplish it. Second, submit to the truth that God has a purpose for it, that he is accomplishing. He can do anything, and he does have a purpose to accomplish in your life, and he's going to do it. Job says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job was learning what Nebuchadnezzar would later learn. We see in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold him back or say to him, what have you done? What is God's purpose in your trials? We're going to see that we don't know ultimately always, but we do know some things. Sometimes you can see how things worked out. You pray at the end of Ephesians 3 uh, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think for his glory. And then you pray that God would answer in such a way that he can only get the glory. And then you stand in awe when he answers. But God's doing way more things than what you see. When Paul received his thorn in the flesh, you remember that passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He said there were four reasons for his uh, receiving that thorn in the flesh, that, that messenger from Satan to torment him. 
He says, first of all, it was to make me humble, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Twice he says, to keep me from exalting myself. When you face the loss of people or possessions and adversity and nearing death through sickness yourself, it humbles you. Second, is to make us pray. Paul received these trials and he began to pray. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. But God wanted him to learn to depend upon Jesus. In verse nine, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. They make you humble. They make you pray. They make you weak, but they make you strong as you depend upon the sufficient grace and power of Christ. And that, my brothers and sisters, will make you content. Verse 10, he says, Therefore I am well content with weakness, with the insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And in another place, a very familiar passage to most Christians, is that he wants to make you like Jesus. He wants to make you righteous and blameless and holy like Job was. Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're a Christian, God has done a lot. He chose you before the foundations of the world. He predestined you. He called you at some moment in your life and awakened you out of darkness and you had the eyes of faith. You obtained uh, salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins and he's not finished. He's gonna glorify you. He's gonna make you like Jesus. And you're going through trials to accomplish this purpose. We also need to submit to the truth that beyond these things, we don't know what God is doing. <laughs> Job says, he, he quotes God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Verse three. And then Job says, therefore I have declared that I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know. We don't know. We have to submit to that. that we don't know why somebody died. We don't know why some possessions were taken from us and our jobs were lost and, and these kinds of things. But we can know that God is doing something and it's a good thing. And in the midst of this, we need to keep submitting to the truth that we need the Lord's teaching. Job says in verse four, hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. He quotes God saying that. God needs to instruct us. We don't need to instruct him. We shouldn't be telling the Lord what to do. He has a purpose. And he gives us his word to be solid for us, a good foundation. His word endures forever. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words became to me a joy and delight. 
God's word can teach you what to think and how to live and how to act and, and where to trust and, and what to depend upon to go through all of your trials. And finally, we should submit to the truth that we need to repent from sinful thoughts. We have sinful ways of thinking in all of us, don't we? We want to complain and grumble. We want to question God. We want to become angry at God. People will say things like that God hates me. Can you believe a, a, a Christian can say God hates you? you? You don't fully understand if you say that. God loves you, brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to repent of our fear. Repent of our anxiety and our worry. We need to believe in our heart that God does what is right always. Pray that God will give you faith, that he'll give you assurance, that he'll give you confidence, that he'll give you the ability to do all of his holy will and not to murmur, not to complain. Let me encourage you. You have a holy, righteous, just, merciful, and loving God who is sovereign over everything in your life. And you can trust him, and he's intimately acquainted with you. He's intimately involved with you. I want you to encourage you to spend some time just worshiping him, praying to him, reading his word, repenting and hoping, and move forward with confidence, not frightened by any fear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I don't know all the things that uh, people here are going through. I know some of them. But we are thankful, Lord, that you know every one of them. And that we can be confident that you have a purpose, that you're working all these things after the counsel of your wise and perfect will, and that you love us. We pray, Lord, that someone here who doesn't know you today would repent of not believing in you. That they would come to believe in the one who was slain from the foundation of the world and who has given himself on the cross in place of our sins. We pray that such a one would come to you and turn from their sin and, and see you as glorious and that they would see believers around them doing these amazing, seemingly counterintuitive things like worshiping you, worshiping you in the midst of trials. Give us that great faith, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.